0: Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at ProclaimKC.org. The passage this morning is from Genesis 1, so if you turn your Bibles to page 1 be fantastic. I'm assuming it's page one. I didn't actually check. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You can have a seat. You know, I'm a a pastor by education, by occupation, right? My passion is, and my practice, is in understanding, articulating, and applying the Bible as best I can for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And as we talk about Genesis 1, I will admit that I have known more than one pastor who has preached Genesis 1, and the result has been controversy in their church. I hope instead that my sermon this morning will produce humble conversation amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not a scientist I've read things I've listened to things related to creation but despite what many people tend to think having the internet in your pocket doesn't make you an expert on everything I appreciate what Augustine wrote Genesis One, Genesis in general uh, was a struggle for Augustine before he became a believer and it continued to be something that he wrestled with and tried to understand. He wrote three commentaries on Genesis. Uh, So you can see that he spent a lot of time seeking to understand this particular book. And, And in one of them, he wrote about one particular verse in Genesis 1 and he said this, You may choose whichever you prefer, whichever view on that verse you prefer. Only avoid asserting anything rashly and something you don't know as if you did. And remember, you are just a human being investigating the works of God to the extent you are permitted to do so. I found that quote from a man who is perhaps the greatest theologian in Christian history since Paul walked the earth, yeah, and much smarter than me by any measure to be humbling and wise. You see, the Bible is not intending to tell the entire history of everything that's happened on the face of the earth since it started. Rather, it's seeking to fully describe how God created and redeems this world. God is the main character. And the grand narrative of the Bible we call the gospel. The gospel starts here in Genesis 1. I want you to understand that that from the very first words of the Bible, we begin to get tastes of the gospel. God's creation of all things and his unique creation of man in his own image. And as we look at Genesis 1, we must think critically about what elements here are essential or foundational to the gospel. Meaning what truths without which we lose the foundation for the gospel message, which we hope in. As well as, we also need to think critically about which areas may be important theological convictions, but where we also grant that biblically rigorous Christians can and have held slightly different views over the ages. In fact, many Christians and theologians who are much smarter than I will ever be, and frankly, if I can be so bold, much smarter than you will ever be, and who are much more holy and passionate about Christ than I will ever likely be. I can only aspire to love the Lord as much as many of these believers who have gone before us. And yet they've come to these verses and they have differed on some of the ins and outs. And so as we looked last week at the first two verses of Genesis 1, and we saw, we saw that the main point of this chapter, verse 1, and it's repeated in, at the end in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that God is the sovereign creator of everything. That simple truth, simple, and yet it's profound. It's profound when Genesis was written, and it's profound today as well. And yet, there's a second truth that I think is also incredibly important that Genesis 1 is trying to reveal. And I hope to draw that out this morning. You see, last week we... We answered the questions, who created and what was created. We talked about a few things we can know for sure from that. This morning, I want to seek to answer three questions as well. First, how did God create? So we look at some important aspects of that written in the text. Second, when did God create? And here's where the controversy often comes, right? We know that. And I want to talk about a number of different views that are out there that that uh, Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians have held over the ages and still hold today. And third, I want to talk about what matters most in all of that. I'll lay out some... which. Theological truths about creation, uh, we believe, are critical to the gospel. And so I ask you to listen humbly. I ask you to consider what is essential to the gospel. Don't merely take my word for it, study God's word yourself. Go to God's word. And this is where I implore you, as your pastor, start with the text. If I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he is my only hope in life and death, then as I come to creation, I start with his word. But I ask that we also have charity with others who may hold different views than ours. Or than yours, understanding that we are all learning and growing in so many things. We live in a world today where we want to simultaneously say, hey, you should accept these things, and yet at the same time, we seem to take pleasure in divisiveness, right? It's this weird paradox that we see every time we turn on the news, every time we listen to someone talk on it. Facebook post or YouTube video. And yet God calls us to something different. So as we come to the text, I want to pray, but I want to share a passage with you that, that I'd like to, us to, to kind of pray over. It comes from Philippians 2. After Paul shares about the humility of Christ in coming to the earth for our sake, he says this. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you, church, may be blameless and innocent children, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in Christ, the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Friends, let's pray that as we look at Genesis 1 and as we live in a world that is divided by so many things, that we would shine like lights amongst a twisted and crooked generation so that people would see the glory of Jesus. Let me pray. God, we come to your word In awe of who you are as our creator, humbled as creation, as a part of creation, Lord, I pray that you would give us humble hearts and open ears and open minds as we look at your text, as we look at your word that you've given us, that we would understand that, God, you, you did not, this is not a mistake what was written here. This is very intentional. Your Holy Spirit inspired these words to be placed in this, in this Bible that we would read it thousands of years later. And you said everything that you intended to say. And you did not say ev- anything, everything that you did not want to say. We have to come to grasps with that. We have to be okay with that. Trust that you as sovereign creator know exactly what you're doing. Pray for spirit of grace peace and love and hearts that desire to know you as our glorious creator we thank you we pray all this in your name amen so the first question i want to answer is this how did god create and we we really we see this in the passage when we begin to to read it and to to kind of study the structure of it. Any time that I come to uh, any passage that I'm going to preach on, I start with two things. I start first with the context of the passage. What, are, what, uh, what's the historical context of it? To whom was it written to? To whom was it written by? Where does it fit in Scripture and in the surrounding passages? And then I also start by looking at the structure of the text. How did the author write this passage? How did he frame it? How did he uh, put the pieces together? And how how does that reveal the purpose that he is trying to communicate from, from the passage? And as we come to this chapter, what we see is the text organized in eight creative acts over the course of six days. That's what we see. And we see this repeated formula happening of, and God said, and it was so, and it was good, and there was evening and morning. Did you see that as I was reading it earlier? It seemed like it was just like, and it's repeated again, and it's repeated again, and it's repeated again, and it's repeated again. And there's, there's purpose to that. There's reason for that. While verse 2 of our text describes the universe before creation's completion as being without form and void, what we see in days 1 through 3 is God bringing order to creation. And in days 4 through 6, we see God filling that creation which he has ordered So in day one, let me explain a little bit. In day one, what we saw is uh, an ordering that corresponds with day four's filling. In day one, God has one creative act, creating light by separating it from darkness. And in day four, we see him fill that with luminaries, right? Sun and moon, stars that provide light. In day two and day five, they correspond. Day two, God creates this expanse by separating the waters, creates this air space. And again, God's separation, it creates order rather than disorder. It's a repeated theme in this chapter and one that you should take note of. In day five, God fills both the water and the air with birds and with fish, those that would live in those Areas. Day three corresponds to day six. On these days, though, what's interesting is that God does two creative acts each. And that's how we have eight creative acts in six days, because on day three, he does two things. He creates earth and he creates the vegetation. And on day six, he creates animals and he creates humans. And you might wonder, why is this, uh, what do you mean that there are two creative acts on these days? You see, as I said, each day has this kind of formula to it. You know, God says, and it was so, and, God, and then God evaluates it. He evaluates his creation, and it was It was good. But for days three and for days six, we see two evaluations each. If you look in the text. For day three in verse 10 and verse 12, he says, and it was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 12 again, and God saw that it was good. And this repetition of the evaluation points us to the fact that God has done two separate creative And he's evaluating each one in turn. And on day six, he does the same thing. Verse 25, he says it was good about all the animals. And then verse 31, he says it was very good as he looks at all of creation with man made in his image there. So while the fish and the birds of day five or even the livestock and creeping things of day six may be different kinds of things... They are created and they're considered one creative act. But there's a different kind of difference between earth and vegetation. The vegetation that it bears on day three and between animals and humans on day six. And so a separate evaluation is needed. But this ordering and filling, it isn't all that we see in the structure of this chapter and on these, of these six days. Note also that... As we move from day one to day six, the description for each day gets longer and longer, does it not? There's more and more that is being described as happening. It moves from general to specific, from less detail to more, until we reach this point in the creative act uh, where God creates man. And that, that single part takes a fifth of the entire chapter. In all the vast universe, guys, guys get, this, get this wonderful truth. In all of the vast universe and in all of the wonderful things from the biggest star or black hole in the universe to the smallest little particle that God created, humanity is the pinnacle in, in where it lies in the narrative of all of creation. And humanity is the pinnacle of all God created you. me, and all the wondrous things. I'm so so excited next week, I won't be here, it's sad, uh, because I'm excited for the sermon, Uh, but but I'm going to be in the mountains hiking, right? And you get in the middle of nowhere in the mountains and these giant house-sized boulders and the trees and these long views, and you go, oh my goodness, creation is amazing. Look at this. And yet, God in his own words says, oh, that is all very, very good. But the pinnacle, pinnacle of it, it's you and me. What? And so that's why next week we're going to spend a whole sermon on just those passages. And I'm really excited about that sermon. Finally, in day seven, we get this capstone, this day of rest or completion, which, which also uh, becomes important throughout the rest of Scripture and which we will spend the Sunday after that really talking about. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that today, other than to say that we find in those verses, as I said before, a repetition of the basic components of Genesis 1-1, that God Created the heavens and the earth. So, what's the point of all of this unique structure of this, uh, uh, these days in which God created and, and, and how He first ordered it by separating these things out and then He filled it through His blessing uh, upon creation? And what's the point? Is it climaxes to this creation of, of man in His own image and then finishes with God resting? See, I think it's not just meant to tell you the fact that God created everything. I think it's meant to leave us in breathless wonder of who the creator is. That as we read this passage, as we move along from verse 1 to verse 31, that we are, breath is taken away. The magnificence that is displayed. I think one, one other amazing detail from this passage, see, God creates by his word, right? By his word alone. And he also creates by his word through uh, his creation as his creation obeys the commands and purposes of their creator. Some places where God decrees something and it happens, we see this, uh, for instance, at the very beginning in Genesis uh, 1, 3, where God says, and God said, let there be light and there was light. How amazing that our God says, let there be light, and there was light. Got some evenings where I wake up in the middle of the night, I wish I could say that, right? Let there be light. Just be someone at the light switch to turn the lights on. He creates it out of nothing. And then there is God's creative work through what we might call secondary causes, that is to say that God creates through his created things. Look, for instance, in verse 11, you see this. God says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And then it says, the earth brought forth vegetation. doesn't just say and there was vegetation it says and the earth brought forth vegetation the earth and the plants do what god created them to do in the way that god created them to be that all of creation understands that their creator is sovereign over them right and that they must obey who and what he has created them to be, do what he commands them to do. The Bible doesn't indicate that these creative acts through secondary causes are any less the work of a sovereign creator, no. Nor does it indicate that creation is in any way less responsible to obey God when he commands it. But rather, what we see throughout this Passage is that everything that has been created was created through God and for God. Thus, when God stands back in verse 31 and evaluates all of creation, it's not just good, it's very good. Very good. And so here's the bottom line of this passage. And, and honestly, if you walk away with nothing else, this is what I hope that you walk away from this Sunday, that creation's goodness declares the creator's glory. That when you look at something in creation that is good, that when I am standing next Sunday on the top of a mountain, and I am looking out over God's creation, over the trees and the creeks and the rocks, and I go, wow, that that goodness points my eyes and my heart to the glory of my creator God. It's not for the creation to set the standard of what is good. But only the glorious creator is able to determine that we, we get the privilege of living in that good creation. See, most everything that I've said so far uh, has very you have very little dispute amongst Christians about about that. And I think that that's these are the most important uh, uh, pieces. But when we begin to ask the question, when did God create, that's where it's not uncommon for, like I said, a lot of very wise, Bible-saturated Christ followers to give slightly different answers. And my purpose in these next few minutes, as I talk about when did God create, is not to sell you on a particular view. That's not what I, I don't feel like I need to do that, nor do I feel like that is very helpful. Um, my Intent is not to explain them exhaustively because frankly, I just don't have that much time this morning. And there are a lot of resources out there that can help you to understand that. But no matter what view you may hold or how firmly you hold it, I think it's helpful for us to understand the pros and cons of, of different views on when God created the earth. And after I share some of those, then we'll talk a little bit about what matters most, those theological truths from creation that that I believe that you must hold no matter what your view is here because they're essential to the gospel. And if someone holds a particular view that denies one of those most important things, then I think that that's, a view that we have to say should not and does not belong within Orthodox Christianity. So, you can divide most views on when God created the earth into two major categories. Uh, One category is called Old Earth Views, and the other category is called Young Earth Views, if you're an avid note-taker and you just really want to write this stuff down. Or Old Earth Views, are those views that hold that the age of the Earth is more in line with uh, what we would say is the common scientific thought of our day—that the Earth is uh, four and a half billion or so years old—and then you have young Earth views, those views that believe that the world is somewhere between six and ten thousand years, depending on uh, which particular view and, and which person you're talking to who hold those views who holds those views. So even within some of these views, there are disagreements about the particulars of, of what things are. Oftentimes, the dating of young earth views is based on some of the, a study of some of the genealogies that we find in the Bible, Genesis and Matthew 1 and, and other places. And so there are three major old earth views that I want you guys to be aware of to have a general understanding of. The first view uh, is called the day-age view. The day-age view holds that uh, when Genesis 1 uses the word day, it refers to an unspecified uh, age, an unspecified amount of time, perhaps millions, maybe even billions of years, are allowed to pass for each Day of creation. And the primary, uh, I say I would say, pro or primary benefit of this view is that it accounts for modern scientific research that dates the earth and the universe as billions of years old. Some scientists even find some correlations between uh, the order of creation in Genesis 1 and the order of uh, different things that, it, that are dated in the... Uh, in their study of, of the earth and what is prevailing scientific thought. And so those correlations aren't perfect. However, however um, the, pr- the primary difficulty with this view, I would say, and this is, this is maybe my opinion, the primary difficult is that from a biblical standpoint, um, as you translate the word for day from the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word that we translate day, Uh, there are instances where that word in Scripture or in Hebrew at large does mean an unspecified amount of time. However, never, we find no other examples where that word, along with a sequence of numbers, so day one, day two, day three, day four, is ever ever translated as an unspecified amount of time. It's always translated as, as a day, like we would understand a day, you know. Midnight to midnight. So that would be, that would be the primary uh, difficulty that if someone holds that view, they're going to have to answer that question. How do you translate Yom in the Hebrew as an unspecified age? The second thing that we have, uh, second view that we have in, in Old Earth views is gap theory. Gap theory holds. That between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2, so between the first and the second verse, there is a gap, hence the name, right? Gap of billions of years. Sometimes uh, people that hold the gap theory fill uh, that gap with, with other things, like this, this may be where Satan fell or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Primary benefit of this view, again, is, is the explanation of time and, and, and even possibly the explanation of certain creatures like, uh, you know, where, what, what happened to dinosaurs? Well, yeah, they existed in and 1-1 and then they were, you know, destroyed and whatever happened in between 1-1 and 1-2. And so some of those things they try to explain with that. I think the primary difficulty is that while grammatically you could grammatically in the Hebrew, you could have a gap between one, one and one, two within the context and within the greater context of the Bible, there's not much else that kind of supports the existence of that. And so I think uh, that's one of the most difficult. Um, hurdles for someone who holds the gap theory, as well as if there was some kind of creation in 1-1 and then something uh, catastrophic happened and it had to be recreated in verse 1-3, you have some difficulties explaining how God can look at creation and say, oh, that's good. Does does that make sense? Because it wasn't all good. Something bad seems to have happened between 1-1 and 1-2. And so that's the primary difficulty with gap theory. Theistic evolution is the third old earth view that people hold. This view holds that God created everything through the process of evolution. So God is sovereignly working through the process of evolution to make everything that has existed This is probably an oversimplification of the theistic evolution view, but essentially God initiates, he creates the kind of the seed for the the big bang to happen. And he sets the parameters of natural law so that that everything can kind of go and plants, he basically plants the seed of creation. And from that creation obeys those laws and, and comes about in time. And the primary benefit of this obviously is that it walks fairly lock and step With wherever science is going in the moment, the primary difficulty is making sense of of the days of creation and what those actually mean. And especially explaining the special creation of Adam and Eve, without which the doctrine of original sin kind of begins to unravel. And if the doctrine of original sin begins to unravel, then why is Jesus coming to redeem everyone? And the gospel begins to unravel. And so that's a, that's a pretty substantial difficulty. I could, I could, maybe I'll explain that like this. The New Testament describes Adam as representing all of humanity in Genesis 1 in bringing all into sin. So Adam sinned, and because we've all descended from Adam, we, sin has come to all of us Through his representation of the human race. The New Testament also describes Jesus as the second Adam. And in the same way that the first Adam brought sin into, was able to represent all of humanity and brought sin into the world, the second Adam, Jesus, represents us in providing a way through faith into salvation. And so if the first Adam didn't actually represent all humans, then we've got a difficulty with Jesus representing us as well then. So those are theolo- theological questions that theistic evolutionists have to wrestle with and answer. So those are the old earth views, uh, humbly and probably um, Poorly explained by me. Then there's a few young earth views that exist. The first and probably the most prominent view, both um, amongst Christians, I would say today, but also certainly amongst Christians throughout history, is the 24-hour view. And this holds that when Genesis 1 says day, it means day as we would just simply understand day if someone said it to you right now. As 24 hours is, you know, midnight to midnight or for, I guess, for the Jew from sundown to sundown is how they would say that. And so the earth is young, like I said, between six and 10,000 years. And the, and the primary benefit of this, obviously, is the most, common and, it's the most common and straightforward reading of the text. It's the simplest way to understand day. And it has the most proponents throughout Christian history. It just does. The primary difficulty of it, of course, is, you know, carbon dating and fossil records and things like that, which would indicate scientifically that the, the world is much older. And, and those who hold to 24-hour day would um, also ha- hold to different theories, which they would base in scientific research, uh, particularly about the flood. Often, it's often referred to as the flood geology that seeks to explain some of these apparent disagreements that have happened through some of the other things that are, are expressed in and told in creation. That there, there, are difference in the differences in the atmosphere pre-flood. That there's the shifting of te- tectonic plates, perhaps that that have caused these inconsistencies in fossil records and, and in dating of things that have happened uh, before the flood happened. So that's. The basics of the 24-hour view. There's also a a related view that we would call mature creationism. Mature creationism, similar to 24-hour view. uh, However, it adds that God created the world with an appearance of age. So in the same way that God created, we hold, we assume uh, that Adam was created as a young adult, a 30-year-old or whatever, not as a baby was what I mean to say, That the earth was also created not as a baby earth, but as a mature earth in motion. So, mature creationists would say that God gave it the appearance of adulthood, that That when God created the stars, he didn't create them. And then we had to wait billions of years for the light to travel from the star to the earth. But rather, he created the star mature and that light in motion already. So the moment he created that star, Adam, well, I guess Adam wasn't created yet. But when Adam was created, he could look up and see that star. The primary benefit to mature creationism is is this attempt to explain the, the apparent age of the Earth while still holding to uh, a literal, you know, a 24-hour day view and a, and a young Earth view. The primary difficulty with it is that some may interpret uh, some may interpret it as God being deceptive. They may see see uh, the idea that God would create an, an aged or a mature creation and say, "Well, that's kind of deceptive, isn't it?" I I um I don't know that there's a very good argument for that being deception except in regards to fossils that that the idea that God would put the bones of animals in the earth to make it look like that that, that I suppose you could make a logical argument for that seeming deceptive and those are the the questions that a mature creationist has to answer: Can creation be deemed good at the end of day one, and day two and day three and day four and day five and day six, if God has put dead animals in the earth that He just created? One last view that I want to share, strictly speaking, doesn't really fall under either uh, old Earth or young Earth uh, heading. And it's the literary framework view. This view holds that Genesis 1 uh, as a literary device that either being poetry or some sort of stylized prose isn't meant to convey chronology at all, either in what was created, first, second, third, whatever, or that it actually happened in 24 hours, or frankly, that it happened over millions of years none of that was meant to be conveyed there. Rather, it's meant to convey historical and theological truths about God and creation. But its benefit is also its difficulty. In that, the primary benefit is that it concentrates more on the text than on any modern scientific chronology. And its primary difficulty is that because it doesn't do that, the question still remains, well, is the, old, is the earth old or is it young? I don't know. Which is it? Literary device person? It also struggles sometimes to make uh, clear-cut the distinctions within the framework that it prescribes. So those are the views. Old earth, day age, gap theory, uh, theistic evolution, young earth, 24-hour Uh, Mature Creationism, and then the Literary Framework View. Those are the the views kind of in a a, a real quick stroke. And because there's very little chance of me walking out of this pavilion this morning without someone asking, well, Cody, what view do you hold? I debated this. I wasn't going to share, actually. And then I realized I'm going to have to answer this question like two dozen times if I don't just say it. So I will tell you. And I, But I want to say that I share this with an, an incredible degree of humility. And with the admission that I continue to think and learn and listen in all of these areas and try to understand God's word as well as I can. I personally hold to the literary framework view. That's the view I hold to. When I, growing up in the church, I, uh, I don't know if anyone said this to me directly, but I, um, I guess maybe I just assumed that if you were a Christian, you had to uh, hold to a 24-hour view. Like that was, that was it. That was your one option. That all other options, you know, that there wasn't any other things. And then I got to Bible college and and they give me this book, you know, hey, let's talk about views of creation. And I thought like views of creation, like there's, there's just like the Christian view and then there's like the atheist, right? It's like, well, it's a little more nuanced than that. And so I began to read and as I read and uh, I changed my view, I changed to a literary framework view. However, um, I would say that I have um, sentiments, maybe is the right word to say. Towards the mature creationist view, um, and if I was pressed to go to answer that question, how old is the Earth? That's that's what where I, what I would go with that. So that's my view. I don't know that it's good, bad, otherwise. Um, and you, I am sure, I am sure that there are people oh, I know because I've had conversations with them that, that people who hold a different view on creation than I do, and that's okay. That's okay. And I enjoy those conversations. Like I said, I'm not selling you on my view. That's not my intention. I believe there's freedom within certain parameters in this. And I hope, and I pray that you would study God's word, that you'd study God's word and not just take my word for it on everything. And so I want to end by talking about what matters most. Proclaims doctrinal statement says this, and I think it's important for us to know what what that says. It says, God created the universe and everything in it, both visible and invisible, out of nothing. All his creation was very good. God requires nothing, but created everything for his glory. God created mankind, both male and female, equally in his image and without sin. And so we have here some very, very important, critical, key doctrines. And as you can see in that, that proclaims doctrinal statement, does not take a specific stance on a particular view of creation, but leaves it open for us to have conversations as brothers and sisters in Christ. But these are the most critical theological elements of creation, that God created everything from nothing, that creation was good before sin, that God didn't create out of necessity, but he created freely, and that mankind bears God's image, every single man and woman. We must find a way as Christians to major on these foundational truths and minor in the conversations around when. It's sad when Christians, it's sad when Christians don't bat an eye at ideas that completely undercut the gospel. We often hear out in the world and even in the church, and yet we quabble over issues in Scripture that Scripture leaves unclear. Rather than holding to the clear commands of Scripture to pursue unity and peace, to love one another, to bear with one another, to be patient with one another, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've got to find unity as believers on the elements that are close to the gospel and allow for appropriately gracious conversations on the areas that are farther away from the gospel. If we don't, we risk seeing and appreciating the gospel beauty that is foreshadowed in Genesis 1. Do you did you see it as we looked at Genesis 1? Did you see it as we read through the passage? Are we looking for it or are we distracted by the debates that we know are coming? Listen, do you see the beauty of your glorious creator? or Do you only see someone to argue with or something to argue about? Here in Genesis 1, we see that just as the creator God made everything, that our savior God remakes us in the gospel, that just as he ordered everything, separating light from darkness, he reorders us, setting us apart for him, bringing us out of the domain of darkness and into the domain of light by his grace through faith in his son. And we call this justification and it's awesome. The old has gone and the new has come. And just as he filled what he has ordered and reordered, Just as he fills it and harmonizes it with all of creation, guys, he refills and he re-harmonizes his new creation just as the earth obeyed and brought forth vegetation. So we, as we obey God, we bring forth the fruit of his Holy Spirit in us and our, our minds are renewed and our hearts are reshaped. And just as he rested when his work was completed, one day, friends, we two will enter his Sabbath rest. It's amazing that from Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 1, 3, God is already starting to tell the story of Jesus. The Christian life, friends, the Christian life is joy in the experience of the good creation that God has created, and joy in knowing the glorious nature of our creator. Creation's goodness declares the creator's glory. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we think about your creative act in Genesis 1, that we would marvel at your glory, that you would give us a renewed sense of awe, not only who you are, but what you have done and what that reveals about you and about us. God, that we would um, just be enraptured by your loving mercy to allow us to be in relationship with you and your mercy in providing for us and sustaining us. Lord, I pray that we would realize that we are created in your image just as much as anyone else in this room or, or anywhere else on the earth is created in your image and that that, would, that it would lead us to respect and love for our fellow creation. We thank you for what you did on the cross and that you didn't, even though we broke <laughs> through our sin creation, we... We brought about this curse that you didn't leave us there, but you have done this work of recreating. We thank you. We pray all in your name. Amen.